Hey there, this is Michael, and today's guest on the show is Alex Abernathy. Alex is a conservative radio host from Tennessee, and I had him on the show to discuss, well, politics. Uh, We talked a bit about his start with radio, uh, his feelings on conservatism, and more broadly, we discussed political polarization, the effects of social media on politics, and the unhealthy worship of some of our politicians. For me, I am somebody who likes to hear both sides of a discussion, and I'm not here to tell you how to vote, though I think Alex comes to a great point in having healthy skepticism regarding our politicians. I want to say that the things that have happened in Afghanistan, the anniversary of 9-11, COVID-19, the Robert E. Lee statue, a lot of these things have been in the background of my thoughts, and I wanted to have somebody that works in these things day in and day out to discuss them. Uh, but we had a pretty broad discussion, and I'm somebody who likes to hear a lot of different sides. But I found Alex to be really sharp, just like he is on his show, funny, and genuinely an interesting guy. I hope you enjoy this discussion. It gave me a lot to think about. Hello. Hey. Hey, what's up? Hey, how are you? Doing well. How are y'all? Or is it just one of you? Uh, it's just, just me today. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on. Sorry about that. I haven't used Zoom in a while. No, you're totally fine. I don't know why. it. Because as soon as you said you sent it to the uh, Yahoo account, I got it immediately. But I just didn't get it on the Gmail account. Oh, well, it's no big deal, though. Probably user error. I, I think I left out the end. In the first email, I, I looked at it, I was like, oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I'm excited about it. This is cool. Yeah, uh, you know, we, we've never really had um, a commentator on here before, so we're really excited to have you come on. And, uh, you know, if you just wanted to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So my name's Alex Abernathy. I went to the University of Tennessee, big sports fan. I'm also a Christian and a small business owner. Uh, my show, it, it's aptly titled The Alex Abernathy Show, and it is a conservative political show. And right now, it, it's, it's radio and it's podcasted out afterwards. It's an hour long each day. We've got five stations right now that syndicate the show, and they're all across the state of Tennessee. So essentially what we do with the show is the first half of the show is all Tennessee oriented. Then the back half of the show is all nationwide. And so we split up the podcasted version into two separate podcasts, one for just Tennessee stuff and the other for all our national stuff so that way we can reach a broader audience. And when all is said and done, each podcast comes out to be about 20 minutes each day. So it's five days, about 20 minutes a day. If you wanted to check out the national podcast, all you got to do is search my name, Alex Abernathy, and it'll pop up right there. And I think it's digestible because it's just 20 minutes a day. And it's it's pretty quick hitting, but I like to think it's fun and entertaining as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I've been listening to you the last, you know, three weeks or so. Um, I've, I've had you through Instagram and uh yeah, you just have a great energy, and I, I think you're, you have a really good uh, kind of empowering uh, philosophy and kind of mindset to conservatism that I think is, is really fresh and, and good. I appreciate that. I really do. And before we get yeah. started, can I actually ask you a quick question? Sure. 
So I know that you're a musician and that you guys mm -hmm. focus a lot on culture and music and whatnot. And I'm totally mm -hmm. ignorant to the story. So I want you to, I just want to know if you can explain it to me. I just saw headlines about some sort of beef this week between Conor McGregor and Machine Gun Kelly. What, what's right. the deal here? Because I like Machine Gun Kelly. Like he's my favorite yeah. artist. But okay. I, I, I don't know what this story is at all. Uh, I mean, from what I understand, it, it's Conor McGregor being Conor McGregor. Uh, okay. So I, I think he said something in passing uh, when they were at the award show and Machine Gun Kelly, who's you know, dating Megan Fox, uh, basically they got in an argument and I think he, he's the one that actually kind of threw his drink at him. Uh, so just stupid stuff, basically. Yeah, I mean, celebrities being celebrities. Uh, yeah, Conor McGregor is a, he's, he's Conor McGregor and Machine Gun Kelly is, uh, he's an interesting artist. I enjoy him, but like I said, yeah. I figured if anybody would be able to give me the rundown there, it'd be you. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it is kind of one of those altercations that was more than it actually was, but that's, gotcha. that is how it, it kind of works in that portion of the news. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, Let's jump in. Awesome. Well, uh, how did you get into, um, you know, what made you want to get into being a, a commentator? Uh, you said you, you worked in the news before that. Yeah. So in college and whatnot, I actually really wanted to do sports. So I've okay. always been, I mean, I'm still a big sports fan. Like the rest of the day today, I plan on working out and watching college football. That's, that's what's on the docket. Awesome. Uh, and I did sports for a really long time. I did it all through college. I did it for a little bit after college. And then I eventually got a job as one of my early radio jobs working in the news department at a local news station in Knoxville. That's where I live. I live in Knoxville, Tennessee. I went to the University of Tennessee. Cool. And so I just did the top of the hour news. And so I'm the guy that comes on. I'm like, it's one o'clock and hot in Knoxville. And then I read you the headlines for the next five minutes. And then I kick it back to the show. And my hmm. first job in radio was doing that on the Rush Limbaugh show. And, and I mean, wow. I get it. a lot of people think that Rush Limbaugh, he's, he's the devil. A lot of people hate him. Uh, I honestly was relatively unfamiliar. I mean, I knew who he was, but I had never sat down and listened to Rush Limbaugh before mm -hmm. doing that job. So I did that, and then I worked on a late afternoon show that came on after Rush here in the Knoxville market. That was a local show. And just over time doing that job, I kind of already knew what my conservative beliefs were, but working in that realm and having these conversations with callers and whatnot every day, I started fading away from wanting to work in sports and wanting to work in politics because I thought, I don't want to be a politician. That's, that's never the goal for me. But I think the political conversations are so important and yeah. I can really – whenever I'm talking to a caller or whatnot, I can really dive into who that caller is and get down to their values, talking about their politics rather than talking about how much you hate Nick Saban. Mm -hmm. so, so through all that is kind of how I got into wanting to do politics and a little bit of culture as well, rather than sticking with sports. Interesting. I mean, was there a particular... Uh call that that really kind of cemented that or what was it just a lot of them you started the volume you were kind of like wow I, maybe i need to shift gears i i think it was really just progressive over time there was one call 
that I thought of while you were asking me that question. It wasn't directed towards me. It was directed towards the host of the late local show. Mm. And it was a, a guy that calls into the show pretty frequently. He doesn't even go by his real name. He just goes by a pseudonym, Tennessee. And he called in one day, and Tennessee does lean very far to the left. So whenever he calls into the show, he frequently disagrees with what we're saying. But, but that's okay. We always have a good and, and entertaining and fun conversation with him. So it's never, it's never necessarily vicious, per right. se. But he called in last fall to say that his son had died of COVID. Oh. And, and now, of course, once again, this is a guy that we've been talking about COVID with day in and day out and disagreeing vastly on. Mm -hmm. And after he called in and said that, the host literally prayed with him on air. And that was, I mean, that was moving in the first place. And then he hangs up. And every other caller that normally will call in and trash this guy named Tennessee every day uh, because they disagree with him, they would call in and they would send him their well wishes before diving in and talking about the topic of the day. So just seeing the way that an audience that can be pretty divided can come together over something like that, that they are already divided on politically uh, – that was just a very moving day in my career for me. And I think that definitely moved me forward. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that's kind of been a big theme for us on here is just kind of encouraging civility. Uh, discussing these things out in the open with respect. I think uh, that's not something we need. We need to focus on that, I think. I'm with you. I'm with you for sure. And on, on my show, I am aggressive in my beliefs, mm -hmm. but at no point am I saying, if you disagree with me, you shouldn't have a, a place to talk. You should also have every right and ability to express your opinion and disagree with me in any way you want to. Right. And I, I think that's great. Um, and that's, that's something you sometimes don't see with other um, commentators. So I, I think that's a good thing. Um, I, I like to think so too. Yeah, I mean, kind of coming at it from a musician angle, I mean, I, I grew up uh, democratic um, and kind of later in life, I started to read more, uh, learn more history and my views shifted over time. And I started to just go like, I don't know. I, I mean, I do feel like one of those people that woke up and I'm like, whoa, what, where did all this polarization come from? Why? Why do people you know, hate each other so much? I, I don't remember it being that vicious, like you said. Uh, how do you think we got here? What was the big push to that? Because for me, honestly, it really feels like it, it didn't feel gradual to me. It felt very sudden. I think, I mean, I think a lot of it's attributable to, to social media. That's kind of the easy answer, right? Is that mm -hmm. in social media, the crazies are the ones who get promoted to the highest of highs. And anybody who's like, yeah, I mean, you're right, but there's also a little legitimacy over here as well. Uh, those people don't get the retweets. They don't get the likes. Right. I also think from a political perspective, we've seen a really big shift into where people's politics begin to be viewed as their morals. Right. And I think we've also started to see this large infusion of the people in politics being the most important thing and how we've almost given our politicians this demagogish look. What, what I mean by that is 
you look at the presidents of early in my lifetime and even before your your George H. W. Bush, your Bill Clintons, even your George W. Bush, they were politicians, and you agreed with them or you disagreed with them, and you could rip on them or you could like them. But then I think around during the Barack Obama presidency, I won't even say at the beginning of the Barack Obama presidency, I would probably say around 2010, we started to see this idea that I think was primarily perpetrated by the left that Barack Obama could do no wrong. He mm -hmm. was perfection, almost this godlike figure. And then the right's not exempt from this either because the right's rebuttal to this godlike view of Barack Obama from the left was Donald Trump, where right. – I mean, and, and I've said before on my show plenty of times, I like Donald Trump. I don't love Donald Trump, but I do like him. And But I think we've started to see more of this view where people love their politicians, and you do have a large sect on the right that loves Donald Trump and, and views him as the same way that the left viewed Barack Obama in this otherworldly type figure. And I think right. that we're starting to see the same thing with the left and Joe Biden and, and even more so, I think, Kamala Harris a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think this has really been a significant downfall in our public discourse is the fact that we are viewing these politicians as people that we love rather than people that we may just agree or disagree with. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of the what I've tried to kind of stress to people when I have these discussions is like, OK, what are the policies? Um, Let's, let's put aside the, like you said, the demagogish idea. Uh, what are they? What are they really presenting? What are they putting forward? Uh, is that just, you know, is that just boring for most people? Uh, I think, I think it's complex. I mean, policy mm -hmm. is complex, and mm -hmm. it takes a lot it takes a lot of explaining in order to actually talk about policy thoroughly mm -hmm. while our institutions like twitter don't necessarily facilitate long discussion they facilitate however many characters you can fit in a tweet and right. i can't sit there and actually hash out a policy decision with you over a tweet i can't sit there and say hey here's what i think about afghanistan and the effects of our policy in afghanistan that they're going to have in regards to north korea and china and iran and russia and everything else going forward i can't do that in a tweet i need to actually sit down and have a conversation with you and so yeah i think because it's not necessarily tweet worthy it's not something that's easy to type out a lot of people just avoid talking policy and would rather just slander people instead right and i mean it I, I can't stand going on there because it just I feel like it turns into just this. It's just like you said, it's it's little. I mean, it's tweets. They literally call it tweets. But these very very complex issues, and it, you can't you you can't break that down into those little chunks. I mean, uh, it and of course they the loudest voices are the ones that get heard the most, and that. It's it's sad when you think about it. I'm with you. And admittedly, I suck at Twitter. Like mm -hmm. I will I'll put out my opinions and promote the show and everything, but I, I always go back and I'm like, well, nobody cares about that tweet. Like I, I'm admittedly just not good at Twitter. I I mean, I don't even know what is good at Twitter. <laughs> it is <laughs> I don't That's really know. A great point. Um no. You know, I, I've seen your post on Instagram, and I, I think you do a good job of 
uh, it feels like a lot of commentators, the way they kind of approach it is they'll, you know, they'll put up a headline, they'll give you your, their thoughts about it. Um, and I think you do a great job on that stuff um, from a, per, a conservative angle, um, as opposed to trying to think of a, I don't know, some people will just put something and I guess just expect uh, outrage. <laughs> yeah, so my kind of approach on Instagram is I will post a headline and then a snarky comment with it mm -hmm. and allow people to comment and have their discourse there. But then also with our show, I will live stream the radio show and do a little live feed on our Instagram and allow that to be more of the bed of conversation, if you will, rather than just the comment section of an Instagram post that you might gloss over for 10 seconds and move on. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've just wondered on the effectiveness of that model. Um, do you, I mean, are you seeing more, is it working? I mean, do you feel like you're getting the message out there? Am I getting it out there? Yes. But am I preaching to the choir? I think probably so. Mm -hmm. uh, granted the goal of our social media is also to grow listeners for the show because mm -hmm. we've got plenty of radio listeners so what we're really wanting to do is build listeners on the podcast diversion across the country so mm -hmm. from that angle uh, yeah i think it it might turn out to be effective only time will tell but mm -hmm. in terms of reaching a broad audience and convincing people to come over to your other side i i honestly don't know that social media is a good platform for that period any social media i mm -hmm. I think if anybody just looks at a single social media post and is like, you know what, I'm going to change my entire political view based on what this guy said on Twitter. Right. That's probably, I think that's not happening. And if it is happening, that person's probably not very intelligent anyway. I mm -hmm. think the way that we get people to actually have dialogue about politics and policies is by actually somebody that they know and respect talking to them and and maybe saying, hey, I disagree with you here, and here's why I disagree with you here. I still – I think that's always been the best way for discourse, and I think it still is the best way for discourse. Yeah, and, and is that just – you know, are we just finding that that's just impossible for social media, basically? <laughs> I, I mean, we've had social media really prevalent in society for, what, like 15 years now? Yeah. And – I really question what positive political movements have come from social media. I think you've seen very good charitable initiatives come from social media. I mean, after earthquakes in Haiti and whatnot, you've seen millions of dollars raised on social media to help people. Social media certainly has its good aspects. But in terms of, of politics, no, I, I don't think it's been a net benefit at all. Yeah, and I, I tend to agree with you there. And that's, I, I'm not sure if that, when that changed, I'm not sure if that was 2016 or if that was 2020. Uh, it, it's hard to really say. You know, I don't know if I have an exact answer for you there either. And it was probably gradual rather than a certain turning point moment. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, I mean, what, what do you think is wrong about conservatives? Like, what, what, what do you feel are the misconceptions there? I think a criticism that I get a lot that is unwarranted is that I'm just selfish. 
and the reason I'm a conservative is just because I'm selfish, and I, I wholeheartedly disagree with that. Because the reason that I'm a conservative, and I grew up in a split household. My mom was a Democrat and an active Democrat in state politics, and my dad was a Republican and an active Republican in local politics. So I, I grew up being challenged constantly, and I think the reason I eventually lean towards conservatism is not because I'm selfish. It's because whenever I really look at the policies and the messaging – I think the messaging is very important as well – of yeah. conservatism, I think it really does lead to the most prosperity for the most amount of people. And I think we have to answer the question first, what actually leads to prosperity? And I believe that anyone in the United States really can prosper, and the way to do that is actually simple, uh, simple said, not necessarily simply done. But that is if you consistently make good decisions in your life and you provide a value to society, you're not going to die poor in this country. You are going to either raise your status or stay on your status in society, and, and you will prosper in this country. And I think the conservatism values or the conservative values of individual and promoting individual choices, that's the messaging of conservatism, and it does lend itself to prosperity. In terms of – I'm trying to think of a policy where people say I'm selfish. Uh, let, let's talk about taxation because that's been a really popular topic in the news lately with the AOC, uh, tax the rich dress and all of that. Right. Uh, so I'm accused once again of being selfish whenever I say, hey, I don't want taxes to increase not just on me in the middle class but also on uh, upper class people. I, I don't I don't think taxes should increase. And they say, oh, you're just you're just selfish because whenever you make more money, you don't want to be taxed. But in reality, I think I can point to lots of policy and and lots of data that shows that increasing taxes, even just on the rich, it, it's predominantly detrimental to the poor. I, I talked about it on my show earlier this week. There's a good breakdown by economist Anthony Davies and James Harrigan from Duquesne University. Hmm. They talk about the difference between the statutory burden and the real burden of taxes. And what I mean by that is you can write in law in, in the statutory version of a tax and say we are going to tax these people. For example, we're going to tax only those who make over $400,000 a year. That might sound a little familiar to you. Uh, and you can say, oh, this is who we're going to charge with this tax. But whenever you actually put the tax into practice and look at the effects of the tax, those who wind up with the real burden of the tax winds up being either your either your lower level workers or just your consumers as a whole. And I, I mean, I can dive even further into this if you want. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office produced research about who actually pays the tax, once again, regardless of the statutory burden. And in Social Security tax, for example, the employee, it, it was Social Security tax was supposed to be split on a statutory level 50-50. 50% is burdened by the employer, and 50% is burdened by the employee. But in actual practice, the employee wound up paying 62% of that tax, while the employer paid the other portion of that tax, and they mainly covered that by just raising prices. So at the end of the day, the employee and the consumer is paying the entirety of the Social Security tax, while the employer is paying none. In Pennsylvania, they have this massive gas tax. It's like 60 cents a gallon. And whenever Democrats passed the tax, they said, oh, well, the big oil companies are going to pay it. That's who the statutory burden is, is on the oil companies. They're going to pay it. But, of course, in practice, here we are a few years down the road, and we can go look at this. 70% of that tax was actually passed down to the consumer. 
So sure, the oil company paid a little bit more. They paid 30% of that tax, but 70% was passed down to the consumer. So, I mean, these are just a couple examples of, of many, many, many examples that do show that whenever you raise taxes on the upper class and even the mid to upper class, what you're really doing is you are hurting your low-level employees and you are hurting your consumers. You're not actually doing a benefit to society at all when you do this. So whenever I say I don't want higher taxes, what I'm actually saying is I don't want the government to put another burden on society. I'm not being selfish when I say this, but of course, that's what I'm accused of all the time. Yeah, and that's one thing I really appreciate about your show is you do really break it down and bring in data that support your arguments, or I, I don't even know if you can call them arguments, but they're your views. Um, yeah, I mean, it, that sort of sloganeering, tax the rich, that whole thing, who takes that seriously? <laughs> I, I don't. I truly tax the rich is one of the dumbest phrases in American politics. There's a lot of dumb ones. Don't get me wrong. Right. But it, it's up there. It's way up there. Yeah. I mean, that I, I feel like even uh, very, very leftists even kind of looked at that and were just like, wait a minute. What? Wait, why? I, I, I really think so, too. I think there were a lot of Democrats that looked at AOC's dress and whatnot and just kind of rolled their eyes and said, we're not even going to defend her. Because of course, a lot of this operates on the assumption, whenever you say tax the rich, you're operating under the assumption that the rich in the United States aren't taxed or aren't taxed enough, which is preposterous. I mean, you can go to the IRS's website and look at the tax brackets and how much of the income tax they pay in the United States. And, and for example, just right off the top of my head here, the top 1% of income earners in the United States earn roughly 21% of all income in the United States. So for 1% of the population, yeah, that's a lot of the income. But mm. in terms of how much income tax they pay in the United States, they pay roughly 40% of the income tax in the United States. So even though they make 21% of the income, they pay 41% of the income tax. So they're actually taxed double, roughly double what they actually make in terms of their percentage of the income tax burden. And it's even greater when you look at the top 10%. The top 10% of income earners in the United States pay roughly 70% of all income tax in the United States, which means the bottom 90%, which is what I would assume you and I would both fall into and most people listening to this show, sure. we foot the bill for about 30% of all income taxes in the United States, even though we account for way, way, way over 50% of the total income in the United States. So it's, it's, I could go on forever about taxing the rich. I'll, I'll shut up there. I just think it's such a ridiculous, uh, it, it's, it's a lie. It's a lie of a phrase with the insinuation that we don't tax the rich in this country. Yeah. And you take that on top of just the, I mean, we're still in this pandemic. We're still, I mean, they, there were so much, there was, it was, you should have called it like the hypocrisy gala. I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> um, and uh, that kind of thing is, I think, why people have such a cynical view of politics right now. Uh, what kind of messaging do you think is going to help people um, I have more uh, assurance in, in their leaders and in their in politics in general, I, I feel like there's just this huge amount of cynicism. So let me address something you said at the beginning of that, that we have a lot of people yeah. that have a cynical view of politics right now. Yeah. 
I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think okay. people should have a relatively cynical view, maybe not of politics, but of politicians. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, politicians are, are people too. They mm-hmm. operate off of incentive structures and the incentive structures that would benefit them. And, and people can make mistakes. So that mm-hmm. goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how people have started to have this godlike view of politicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the more we can be cynical about our politicians, and maybe cynical is not the best word, but skeptical is right. what I should go after. The more we have this skeptical view of politicians, I, I think is a very good thing. What I think we're seeing a lot of right now, and I would say probably more so on the left than on the right, but certainly on the right as well, is this idea that you're skeptical of politicians unless they're doing what you want. Right. Something that's really stuck out to me that I've found extremely ironic is that what I heard from the left all year in 2020 was that the government was so intrinsically racist, had these systems of racism, it was patriarchal, and it was totally designed just to keep the minority and the women and and anybody who's not a white man down, and we cannot trust the government at all. Right. then you say, well, what about COVID? And Democrats say, oh, well, we have to believe everything the government says. The government and the scientists inside the government would, would never lie to us, and we have to obey every single rule that they give us because they are always right where is your standard there? Is the government bad or is it good? Because to me, it seems like the government is only good whenever you want it to be, and it's bad whenever you want it to be. There is no standard. So I think overall skepticism would be a good thing instead of this selective skepticism where you say, oh, the government's good here, but it's bad here. No, 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 no. Give me some sort of standard that you're going to follow. Yeah, and that brings me to another question. I mean, you said you work um, for Fox and CNN. I mean, as far as the selective skepticism and, and kind of selectiveness in the way they report things, what was that experience like? I mean, did, what, were editors really like, no, you need to change this to spin this this way? I mean, did you see that firsthand? So, so I didn't necessarily like write for Fox and CNN. So I wasn't okay. necessarily dealing with editors. The way that it works mm-hmm. in the radio business mm-hmm. is when I was a radio news anchor, you have a contract with one of your overarching news companies, like a Fox, like a CNN, like an ABC, mm-hmm. and they will send you a whole bunch of national news. So okay. that way your local person is tasked with putting together all your local news for your top of the hour newscast. And then for national stuff, you can pick and choose from what they send you, and you can plug it in there as well and build yourself a nice five-minute newscast that's a mixture of local and national stuff. Mm-hmm. And I used to work for a station that was affiliated with CNN. And so every clip I got or every clip I was allowed to play on the national news was from CNN. And now eventually my Mm -hmm. station switched over and has since become a Fox station. And now I work for a Fox affiliated station where all of my national clips come from Fox. And yeah, I mean, there, there's a vast difference. I don't think I necessarily need to dive into the difference because everybody knows the difference between Fox news and CNN, but it is even from someone who works in it, it is readily apparent the different biases of, of both channels. Yeah, because I mean, you've had somebody like Ben Shapiro just sort of call CNN the, the public relations department of, of the you know Democrats. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. Which is hilarious to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it feels true. I mean, you, you know, I used to love watching CNN. I, uh, 
I mean, I haven't had cable for years, but I, I used to feel like, okay, well, I mean, they're at least trying to somewhat objectively report what's going on, but I, I feel like those days are long gone, unfortunately. I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, you even look at people like George Stephanopoulos over at ABC, whenever you mm -hmm. talk about the media being the PR department of the Democratic Party. I mean, George Stephanopoulos literally worked in the Obama White House and immediately got out of the Obama White House and got a job anchoring on ABC. Right. To, things happen. I mean, Kaylee McEnany, I, I can never say her last name. She ended up yeah. working for yeah, Fox. Yeah. So that, so, I, I mean, but, but to say that there's that these institutions of media are totally just just non-connected to the government and their parties at all, I think it's disingenuous. I think they are both mm -hmm. very both sides are are very connected politically. Right. And I mean, is that good? Is that bad? Well, I mean, I think if you ask the founders of our country if it was good or bad, they would all look and say that it was bad. Because they all preached the idea of having a, a free and fair media. Mm -hmm. Now I think they realized very quickly on that a fair media was never actually going to happen. I mean, you had Benjamin Franklin who ran a printing press and had owner stake in a printing press for 50 years of his life and quickly, quickly realized that the financial incentive when it comes to printing newspapers was to take a political position and ride that position so that way people that agree with you buy your newspaper. So I think they would say that it's not good to have mm -hmm. the media intertwined in politics, but I think they would also, because I believe that the founders of our country were intelligent men, they would also point out that it was inevitable that the media would become intertwined with politics. Right. And I mean, for me, it's, I, I don't understand where this desire for sort of just uh, mob rule. I mean, they, the founders obviously were like, no, that's, that's a bad idea. I, I don't understand the appeal of that. Where, where do you think that is coming from? Oh, the appeal of mob. Okay, so my first question would be, which side of the aisle do we see more mob rule coming from? I'm seeing that from, I mean, of course the left is going to say, well, it's actually the right, and the right typically is going to say it's the left. In my experience, I'm seeing more of that in my life, more in the left area. I mean, there's certainly... I would tend to agree, and I do think you're right that there are some more populists on the right as well, mm -hmm. but I think whenever you look at people who seek to take the authoritarian notion of if you disagree with me, you cannot talk, when you look at, at people who literally went and, and burned down cities across the United States last year, uh, that is the left, and I'm not writing off January 6th. I mean, I I have said on my show that I'm I'm not a fan of what happened on January 6th, but the reality is January 6th lasted about uh, three hours and was a bunch of morons raiding the Capitol, in my opinion. As yeah, to and it's been used as a cudgel since. I mean, it, it, so I have, I hear you. I said they've been using that as a cudgel since. I mean, they always go back to the insurrection, the insurrection. I'm like, we all watched that live. I, it seemed more like a, a grievance-driven mob that really didn't even understand what they were doing. <laughs> my, I mean, that's how I saw it. I agree. I agree. And, but of course, and it's the common conservative view to say, look back at 2020, like I was just doing and, and look at what happened in the summer of 2020. I believe the interest in mob rule 
comes back to the ideology of wokeism. And I know mm -hmm. woke has become a very popular talking point and, and a word that is overused, but I still like to use it quite a bit. And I think at the core of wokeism is this idea of superiority. And mm -hmm. because I believe this, I am now morally and virtuously superior to you. And I have all these people that agree with me. And because we all agree and we're the slight minority at this point in time in the country, because we all agree and we all agree that we are the morally superior ones, then we should have mob rule. And the slight majority should rule the minority because we as the majority truly in our hearts believe that we are superior to you just because of our political beliefs. So I think the appeal for mob rule, if you really trace it down to its roots, comes down to this idea that the slight majority in the country right now has a pretty vast superiority complex over the minority in the country right now. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know how much you talk about it on your show, but how do we respectfully respond to that? How do, it, it feels like, uh, how do I put this? Uh, how are we going to effectively respond to these people uh, and I don't want to say sit them down, but what what do you feel is the best way uh, around that or it, it, we're going to have to confront it directly? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I wish there was an easy solution here. Mm -hmm because I think we're going to have to see a massive cultural shift. And I don't think there is a real political solution to this into getting people to get along better. Mm -hmm. and, and I really do think it comes down to right now, we have a culture that celebrates people and gives people millions of dollars who hate the United States of America and who actively demonize those on the other side of the aisle from them while those who like the United States and those who might have conservative values are now demonized from society. We do the same thing with those who do and don't provide service to society right now. If you are, if you're someone who's not providing a valuable society to the country right now, you have excuses made for you, predominantly COVID, and you are given a fat check from the federal government. While as if you are Jeff Bezos and you are going out and actually providing value to society, a, a value that really carried our country through the pandemic, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, and you are providing this sort of value and making tons of people rich off of your back, you are now demonized in our culture. So I think we are demonizing the wrong people. We are celebrating the wrong people in our country. And how do we, to get back to your original question as to how do we fix that? I, it's so hard. I, a cultural shift really has to be done at an individual level. And I say it on my show every day that the core of my show is I believe in you, I believe in me, I believe in the power and the importance of the individual. And I don't know if there is a big sweeping measure that can be taken to say, hey, let's all get along again. I think it has to be individual by individual making it, making the choice on their own to actually cordially get along and have rigorous debate with the other side of the aisle. Yeah, and that's, you know, like you said, I yeah, it is just going to have to be that that broad, and it's going to have to be the individual. I, I agree, and I, I really like that, um, 
you know, I think that's a great, like I said before, that's a great message, I think, to give out to your listeners. Um, well, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, where should people, uh, you know, where should we find you online or any, any big plans for the show in the future? <laughs> yeah, for sure, Michael. I appreciate it. Uh, sorry if I ranted a little bit. No. But I, I tend oh. to do that. But yeah, like I said at the beginning of the show, if you want to find my show, I, the national portion, because I know you have listeners all across the country, the national portion of the show is very much 20 minutes a day, super digestible. And we're on all of your favorite podcast apps. We're on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to shows. Uh, all you got to do is search my name. It's Alex Abernathy. And you should see both podcasts pop up when you do that. They both look pretty similar. One says Tennessee's Anchorman. Of course, that's the Tennessee podcast. And the other one just says Alex Abernathy Show, National Conservative Broadcast or something along those lines. And yeah, that's the one if you want to check it out. Uh, like I said, I try to, I will combat a lot of policy on my show. I will combat a lot of idiocracy on my show. But at the end of the day, I really want to promote the idea of the individual because I think that sort of messaging of promoting the individual is what leads to the most prosperity for the most people in the United States. Yeah, and I, I agree with you uh, 100% there. Um, I, I hope we can get back to that. Um, you know, I, I'm sure it's, it's not going to be, not going to happen overnight, but I think we can do that. I'm with you. I, if I didn't think it was possible, I wouldn't do this. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, enjoy, enjoy the, uh, the college football today. I hope it's, uh, I know you weren't feeling too well the other day, so I hope you're feeling better also. I'm feeling, I'm on fire today. Good. Oh, like feel sick? No, I feel great today. I'm energized and I'm ready to rock and roll. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alex. It's been a pleasure and uh, you know, we will definitely uh, let you know what the episode is up and uh, again. Sounds good. I appreciate it, Michael. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Pedestrian at Best podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or anywhere else that you may be listening. You can add us on Twitter. Just search at Pedestrian. Or you can add us on Instagram. Just search Pedestrian at Best podcast. We hope you were doing well, and thanks for listening.